If you, if you have your Bibles, please open it to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 will be the text for us this evening. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 to 25. A little bit longer for us this evening, but I trust it will be edifying and encouraging and even at times convicting, definitely for me. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to look and learn the life of Christ, especially how you lived amongst men and how you were able to live a perfect life. And Lord, we ask that as we look to Christ, that it will cause us genuine humility to see that this man came into the world fully God and fully man and lived this perfect life and dying dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, we look forward to be able to see Jesus face to face one day. But until then, your word is enough to teach us, to allow us to know him more. And I pray that as we go through the text this evening, that you give us attentiveness and give us, just use the Holy Spirit to convict us of areas in our life that we need to confess and repent of so that you can, so we can look more like your son, Lord. Be with us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When I was younger, I, mean, I grew up in the East Bay in Oakland, and it's usually around this time of the year where uh, my family or friends will think about coming over to San Francisco. And I remember as a kid how fun it was to go with my friends. We would go to BART, uh, and then we'll go from usually Bay Fair, that's kind of like the East Bay, the close one to my, my friends and I. We'll go on the BART all the way into downtown SF, and then we just hang out. And the place that we would always go is the Westfield Mall. And I could still remember going through the tunnels and then seeing the homeless people stealing things from Starbucks. And just going around the mall, it felt like it was this huge maze, uh, but it was a, a beautiful place. There was a lot of life there, there was a lot of activities, there was a lot of food, a lot of things to go to buy things. It was a fun place to hang out. Fast forward to 2023, and we see that that's not what it is anymore. In fact, if you, in fact it's not even called Westfield anymore, it's just some other name. And it's sad because the splendor, the significance, and the spectacle of that mall has gone downhill over the years. And I bring this up because when we see, sometimes we look at a building and we think of what it used to be, how it was filled with life, how it was so great and grand, but over time, because of corruption, because of just things that are going on, things just decay. And you can't help but just remember what it used to be. I bring this up because I think this is how Jesus sometimes views Christians or professing Christians. Sometimes as believers, we start off very well. We, we, we profess uh, Christ as our Lord and Savior. We learn about God's word and we try to aspire to be more like Christ on a regular basis. But over time, we backslide. We allow compromises in our life to the point where our profession of faith is empty. It's hollow. It's lost its splendor, significance. And more importantly, we lose our salvation because of the small compromises in our lives. 
in this particular section that we're going to go over tonight, I think Jesus does confront Israel and their empty religion. This section here is Jesus entering into the temple. And the temple is a very significant thing for the Jewish people because in a lot of ways throughout the entire Old Testament, it is about the temple. Uh, and, different, and, and I'm not saying the physical temple, but the, what the temple represents. The temple represents being with the Lord, the Garden of Eden. They were with God. Adam and Eve was with God. They were fellowshipping with him. They were walking alongside him. They were walking with him. They were able to commune with him. Now, obviously, because of the fall, things became corrupted, and there was always this question, how can we get back to the Lord? How can we dwell amongst with God again? And time passes, and, you know, Pastor Henry, we went through the book of Numbers, and you understand that there was the Ark of the Covenant, and there was the tents, and then later on there was even a physical temple where uh, Solomon was able to build. And because of sin and compromise, they would lose the temple, and, that, and then they would have to rebuild it, and we see that, that in Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, and even, or actually Ezra, Nehemiah, and then in the book of Haggai as well, this second temple that is supposed to be significant, that, that is not really as significant as it was because the young people, when after you know, a certain amount of time had passed, they remember what that old temple was like. And it was, and they were weeping. In Haggai chapter 2, it said the people were weeping because they realized, they remember what the tem- temple used to look like. And what it is now in the second temple is not even close. And then time happens again and they will lose the temple they'll get back the temple to a point where even in modern day there is no temple what's on top of where the temple used to be is a, is is where the muslim mosque is located the temple in a lot of ways this is it, it's a reflection of israel's spiritual condition when you look at the where the temple is at in the scriptures you can tell where the spiritual condition of israel is at now, I know in modern day, again, there is no temple, which again, it tells us a little bit about modern day Judaism, that it is just a hollow shell of what it used to be. And all this to say is that God hates empty religion. God hates empty religion. When we think about the temple, we think about how even at the end, when Ezekiel, the, temp, the, the glory of God have left the temple, it was to signify that God is no longer there, that God is no longer with his people anymore. And in the life of Christ, that's definitely the case. That the people have compromised and they've made Judaism into something that is not. Even though they have a a physical temple, it is a hollow shell of itself. Now as we look at this text, we're reminded that empty religion is offensive to the Lord. It's ascribing something to God that doesn't belong to him. And Jesus attacks those that that try to use God's name in vain. So when we look at this, I'm just going to just do just three scenes that teaches us about empty religion. And it's a way for us to really do some self-reflection because it's easy for us in a church like this to come to church and you be gracious and kind to one another in the way that we interact. And, but yet at the same time, there can be, it can be just empty. And I hope that's not the case for you. That when you look at your own faith, when you, look, when you reflect upon your own life, that you can say that I am truly a follower of Jesus Christ. 
as opposed to just this is something that I do because this is something I, I, I just like the Christian community. So the first scene that we see that help us see whether or not our faith isn't re, is not whether our faith is real or not. The first scene we'll call it the figs. We'll call the first scene the figs. Mark chapter eleven verse eleven it says, and Jesus entered Jerusalem. And came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Now, just kind of catching up to where we're at, chapter 11, that was the triumphal entry. This is the, well, some tradition called it Palm Sunday, where Jesus entering into the temple, or going into Jerusalem, and the crowd, the multitudes of people were bowing down and throwing palm leaves and uh, screaming and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They wanted Jesus, but they wanted Jesus not because of why he was there originally, which is to die for sins, but they wanted Jesus to be the king so that they can overthrow the Roman Empire. They wanted Jesus for that, for a reason that is not what was intended. Jesus came to the world to ransom, to be a ransom for many, but the world wanted him for some other reason. So he's going in, he enters into, this, into Jerusalem. The first thing he seemed to have done is to enter into the temple. It's late, so he goes and he notices different things, and it seems to indicate that he was just observing to see if the people have changed. Because although this passage here seems familiar, and for some of you who don't know, this is a passage where Jesus overturns the tables and everything. We actually realize that that's not the first time that Jesus has done this. This is not the first time Jesus has done this. In John chapter 2, verses 13, earlier on in his ministry, he did just that. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found temple who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of, of cords and drove them all out of the temple. And this is, it goes on and on to just say that he, he did this, and he, it would seem that when he did this, people should have repented. Because Jesus is calling them to repentance. Jesus is saying that what you're doing right now, it's not right. So I think he's there to just kind of surveying if they've learned their lesson. And it seems, obviously, as we know the text later on, that isn't the case. That the people there, although Jesus has confronted them once before, they have gone back to their old ways. Verse 12, and on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. It's most likely here that Jesus was uh, woke up early. Is what he usually would do is that he would pray in the morning. Uh, we're not sure uh, how long he prayed, but he at some point became exhausted and hungry. And again, this shows us this humanity that Jesus has, that he needed to rest, he needed to sleep, and he needed to eat. And he, this is why in Scripture says that he can sympathize with our pains, he sympathized with our limitations. Because although he is fully God, he was also fully man. He put on the limitations of humanity and he felt hungry. Verse 13. And seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now it seems strange where Jesus was hungry and he's looking for figs. And fig trees were a common thing in Israel. They can just, I mean, we don't have that. Like we can't pick apple trees when we're just walking around in the city. 
Um, but in, in, in Jerusalem or Israel, that's what they were known for. One of the things that would make them special and unique as a city or as a country was that there's just fig trees all over. And people could just go up to any of these fig trees and eat it. So Jesus saw one of these fig trees and had a whole bunch of leaves on it. So he decided to go and grab and look for some figs to eat. Now, something about fig trees that we should know that's helpful for us to understand is that usually for plants, leaves will grow first and then the fruit will come afterwards. Fig trees are the opposite. The fruit will come first and then the leaves will come after, which implies that if you see a whole bunch of leaves, there should be a whole bunch of fruit. So Jesus naturally would go up to this tree thinking that there is figs, only to realize that there is actually no figs there. And then he goes he curses this tree. Now it says here that it was not the season for figs. Uh, that means that it wasn't the right time. But this word here, season, is supposed to signify that this is the reason why the story is here. Because the word season here is not a botanical term. This word season is the same word that is used in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, about the time has come where, where it's time for salvation. So he's talking about some sort of spiritual thing here. And I think Mark did that intentionally because he, Mark, it was really Peter's gospel, is looking back at this, and he's, he understands what Jesus was trying to do. That this fig leaf, or this fig tree, was to symbolize something more. This would be a parable or illustration for them to understand something. That something deeper is going on here. In verse 14, he said, uh, and, and Jesus said to this plant, may no one ever eat from you again. It was weird, and think it wasn't like Jesus was hangry, he was like so mad at this fig tree, he decided to curse it. I don't, think that was, that was a, I don't think that was the case. I think Jesus tried to teach a lesson here about the spiritual condition, about Judaism, as we'll see later on. But the people there that was following, they were listening to him. They saw this tree, and, and it was barren. And I think, again, this tree, this fig tree, is supposed to be a symbol of what Israel was like at the time. They had so much leaves, but yet they had no fruit. They had so much, they had so much potential from a distance. You can see this tree, and you think that they sh there should be fruit, but yet there isn't. And Jesus here gives this divine judgment on this tree. And this is the only miracle in the book of Mark where it is in the negative or in a destructive sense. Most of the time in, in the gospel of Mark, he's healing something or he's resurrecting someone. He's bringing someone back to life. He's, he's giving uh, people, uh, blind people eyesight, the ability to see again. But this is the only, time where it's, the only time where it's in the negative where he's actually destroying something. And again, this will teach the disciples, something that's deeper. That even though this tree that has a lot of leaves, it didn't bear any fruit. The foliage advertised fruit, but there was no fruit. Now I wonder if you think about Christianity in the same way. That you might have a lot of leaves, but yet there is no fruit. You could have a lot of leaves, and when people look at you, they may think, oh, you, this person serves a lot. This person attends the church. This person gives so much to the community or to the church. For sure, this person must be a believer. But yet God is not impressed by the things that you do. But what he cares most about 
is that are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing Christ-likeness in the way that you live? Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And, and the Bible often talks about how uh, using use the word fruit as an illustration of the way believers should act, that you'll know them by their fruits. So just because you have a lot of leaves does not mean that you have fruit. And I think this is what's going on with Jesus trying to get out with the Israel nation. They, were, they had this temple that all of these different religious ceremonies and, and activities, yet their heart is devoid of truth. They had this lack of love for the Lord. They were bearing no fruit. And because of that, the Lord curses this tree. And really, God is pouring his judgment out onto Israel, saying that basically he's giving them over to their own sin. And I hope that's not the case for us. When we think about our life, when we think about our faith, it's not so much the things that you do in the church or for the church, but do you have a genuine love for the Lord? When you look at your own life, are there any fruits in your life or are the things about you just leaves covering what you really are, which is a fruitless tree? And this is a picture of what is someone that is spiritually dead. And I hope that for all of us, when we look at our life, that we're not just people that have leaves, but that we're bearing fruit of repentance, that, we're walking, that we have the fruit of the Spirit, that people can look at our lives and, there's, and that the Lord can really look at our life and can tell that we are actually his people because we exhibit Christ-likeness. So not only the, the figs that can teach us about the empty religions that is offensive to the Lord, but also the next one, the frauds. First one, the figs. Second one, the frauds. Verse 15. And then he came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began to seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they were going out of the city. So we see that Jesus enters into this temple, and he starts driving the individuals out. He sees these individuals, and understand where Jesus entered from. I think maybe some of your Bible type at the back, but... If you look at the picture of a temple, there's this place called the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, the temple was divided to, between different sections. Uh, you can't, obviously can't go into the Holy of Holies, but uh, there's different sections there that basically were uh, people that are priests that can enter, people that are uh, Gentiles can enter, there are people that are women can enter. There's just certain parts that are segmented um, depending on where you stand with the Lord. And when, where Jesus entered in, it seems to be where the court of Gentiles are, which is the biggest section. And these are people that want to go into the temple to worship God. But yet when Jesus is there, he noticed that they're just selling animals and they were doing all these different trade. It was no longer a place of worship, but rather it was a place of business. And it wasn't just that there was anything wrong with buying the animals per se, because back then in the Old Testament, they had different, they'd bring up different animals. But over time, the Pharisees and different religious people created a system where they're able to make money out of it. 
And they would do this thing where people would bring a certain animal and they say, well, that animal is not kosher. Uh, and you, the only real legitimate animals are the animals that you could buy from the temple in this, in this area here. So then people would have to, that want to offer sacrifice, the Lord would end up having to go to the temple and buy a different kind of animal that's from them in order to offer a sacrifice. Or if there are certain currencies that they have to exchange in order to buy certain things. It's, it's kind of like microtransactions on certain apps. Like you, you have to buy a certain thing, you have to buy the app, and in the app you buy another thing. And it's, it's almost like a, like a pyramid scheme. And that's what's going on here. Jesus noticed this pyramid scheme going on in the, in, in the temple, and, he, and he's infuriated by it. Because the temple was supposed to be a place of worship. It was, it was supposed to be a place that is quiet so that people are meditating on the truth, or, or they're broken by their sin, and they were, they're trying to bring an offering to the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. But the Pharisees, the religious leader, took that and made it into a place where they were exploiting people. That's what was offensive to the Lord. And that's why Jesus was driving them out. And that's why Jesus in verse 17 tells them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you made it into a robber's den. This is a reference, there's two Old Testament references here. And it's supposed to testify that Old Testament Israel was supposed to be a place where there was to be a light to the world in the way that they live, in the way that they worship God, in the way that they were blessed by God, the whole world was to go to them. All these Gentiles, people that can see God's faithfulness to Israel, would want to go and get to know him. Now we understand and we know in the Old Testament that only happened maybe once at best, which is the Queen of Sheba. She sees Solomon, um, she sees how God blessed Solomon, and then she ended up being a believer because of it. But for the most of Israel's history, they failed. Over and over again, they have compromised and compromised and compromised to the point where people did not want to go and worship the one true God. This is why Jesus rebukes them with, his, with scripture here. Where instead of a place where people are praying, they're robbing one another. It says, verse 18, And chief priests and the scribes heard this began to, and began seeking how to destroy him. They heard this, and this again, this is the second time Jesus has done this. You know, they're trying to find a way to wipe out Jesus. That's what the word destroy here means. It's this idea of just destroying, annihilating Jesus. That's their goal here. And they said, they were, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And it's fascinating, because even though they were afraid of Jesus, they didn't worship Jesus. Which is a lesson for us to think about. That you can actually be terrified of God, but yet not worship God. Because that's exactly how the devil thinks. In James, it talks about how the devil trembles. They, they at least tremble when they know about God. But yet, trembling, like actual fear, doesn't necessarily equate to worship. You can fear God, but, it, but have a false kind of fear. In the sense that you just are terrified of who he is, but yet have no relationship with him. These Pharisees were that way. But they were terrified of him because of this because of the way that he taught the crowd, how he moved the crowd and how he, how, how he made people reconsider Judaism, which essentially means that their scheme is found out and they're going to lose, begin to lose all of their money. Verse 19, And when evening came, they were going out of the city. Now, although our church may not be a place of robber's den, sometimes I think we view the church 
as some sort of place that is for us. How do you view the place, this church? Now, I'm not saying that you can't come here and have fun. I mean, we had Fall Fest last week. There are a lot of things and activities that we do that's fun and it's fine because they're intended with a purpose to win people to Christ. But when you think about the church, when you think about coming here on a Friday or a Sunday, do you see this place as a place of worship or do you see this place as a place to be worshipped? What, what I'm trying to get at is this. When you come to church, do you find yourself thinking, what can I offer to the Lord today in the way that I sing, in the way that I give, in the way that I hear God's word? Or do you think to yourself, when I'm coming to church, what can I get the most out of it? And there's nothing wrong with, again, hearing and learning about God's word. But I'm thinking about everything else. Like Some people choose not to go to church because they're bored of church. And they think that the, the, the place is not as exciting. The place is not fun. What can I get out of it? It's better for me to stay at home and watch YouTube videos because that's way more exciting than coming to church. Do you view church as a place to worship God or to be worshipped? Although you may not think this church is as a robber's den, but do you try to rob time or resource from this church because you think it's all about you? Do you view this ch- church as a place for you or is it a place where you can go and worship God together? There should be a sobriety and, and, and solemnity in the way that you think about church. When you come to a place to worship the Lord, yes, I know you, some of you guys are on your phones, and that's fine because you're actually you know, listening and using the Bible app, but I know others of you are not. Some of you are probably using your phone right now and looking on things like Instagram and Facebook. You're just kind of there waiting for this, thing, this preaching time to pass, so that you can go and do something that you like in the church, mainly snacks or fellowship. And that's a wrong attitude to have. As Christians, we need to have a right view of the way that we enter into the, the worship, uh, into, into the church. Because the Lord sees your heart, and that is not genuine love for him. You may not think of this place as a robber's den, like I don't think you're stealing money from the church, but do you see a, the church as a place that you need to take God seriously. Because if you're not, then that is also a sign of empty religion. You come into the church, but you can be physically there, but your heart can be somewhere else. And the Lord is not pleased with that. The Lord is not pleased with your mere presence. What the Lord wants is a heart that is devoted to him. How do you view the church? Not only is the scene of the figs or the frauds, Lastly, we can see faith. In the last thing, we'll call it faith. Like, how do we know if you have a genuine faith? We'll just look at faith itself. Verse 20. It said, And as they were passing by in the morning, so this is the next day, they saw the fig withered from the roots. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree which you curse has withered. And Jesus answered him and said, to them, have faith in God. Now, this tree here is withered completely, and it's supposed to, it's this graphic picture because the day before, it was a tree that had a lot of leaves. That means even though it didn't have fruit, it still had life. But this tree now is withered completely from the roots. This tree at one point 
did bear some fruits, it seems, because it says in verse 14, like, may no one ever eat from you again, which implies that there was a point in life or, this tr- or the life of this tree that it did bear fruit. And for whatever reason, this tree stopped bearing fruit. And Christ cursed this tree, and it died and withered. And this word, right, when it says withered from the roots, it means that it's dead from within. Like, it just decayed. I have these plants in my house that I think Kelly and I had since we were first married, and some of them decayed, and it took a long time to get to that point where it was like rotting and falling apart. I thought succulents were immortal, but it's not, apparently. You have to actually take care of these things. But this tree here went to the state of decay at the very next day. On a side comment, there's something I just thought about, but I think when I think about the old earth versus young earth debates, and people say it has to be old earth for all of these reasons, I sometimes think, well, God can actually make a place worse because he can control it. He's the God that can, has everything controlled by words. If he wants to decay a place, he can do whatever he wants. And this is like this tree here that's just falling apart uh, the next day. It is not scientifically possible for this tree to decay so quickly, especially since it had leaves the day before. Now it's like completely destroyed from within. And Peter here is reminding him, look, the fig tree which you curse has withered. And I think that's funny that like Jesus here answers because no one, no one was asking him any questions in verse 22. He just tells them to have faith in God. Faith in God here means to trust in the Lord. And why is he saying this? It seems so out of place here. And I think Jesus here is trying to prepare the people, mainly his disciples and followers, to understand what life is like without the temple. Because even then, at this time, they were looking to the temple as a place of worship. And Jesus, the day before, just turned all tables and, and basically set a curse upon the temple. And this temple was there until 70 AD. We're going to go back into the book of Hebrews on Sundays. And one of the, the tension that the Christians had in the book of Hebrews is that how can they believe in Christ if the temple was still present? Then when the book of Hebrews was written, the temple was still there. And it was only a few years after that that the temple was completely destroyed. So Jesus here is actually preparing for that time for the disciples to understand that, that, that the temple is not needed for worship. That he's going to destroy this thing. And what you need in order to, to live in this world is to have faith in God. The temple was important at that time, but they need to learn to trust God. It's trusting God and all that Jesus has said the power of the gospel and everything that's attached to it. He knows that it's about loving and trusting in the Lord and not about the temple anymore. That's why it continues on by explaining just this faith that we need to have. Verse verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Verse 24, for those reasons I say to you all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. So this is this portion here, Jesus is teaching about praying and trusting in the Lord. That if you trust, then you say move this mountain. Now, obviously, no one's ever moved mountains like this. Uh, not even Jesus. And, you know, the apostles did this. So I don't think Jesus here is actually saying literally we can move mountains. Uh, that is a song, I think, in those uh, old hymns. But 
I think what Jesus is trying to get at is supposed to be like a metaphor. Like, think of things that seemingly impossible, things in your life that, that you want it to move, the Lord can move it. And it could, I know this sounds like very charismatic or prosperity preaching, but it's not so much about actual physical movement of things, but it's really trusting in the Lord, is that you don't doubt the Lord. I mean, we know this phrase, I mean, in English we have phrases like, don't make a mountain out of molehills. That's just basically, don't make a big problem out of a small issue, right? Like, this is just what, this is one of the things that Jesus is trying to say to get people to think about the magnitude of trusting in the Lord. That, it, that if you trust the Lord, then the Lord will give you, or really give you things that is most, that's best for you, that will most magnify his glory. God only answers his, answers your prayer does according to his will. And even then, if it may not feel pleasant, and it's oftentimes in retrospect, that we'll understand that, okay, this is actually good for me. God will give what is good for you. So do you believe that whatever happens in your prayer life, the things you ask the Lord for, that is actually going to be good for you? And that's why I think like Jesus was saying here, that he said, for this reason I say to you, all things which for you you pray and ask, believe, and that you receive, receive them, it will be granted to you. You ask God according to his will, and if you truly believe him, if you truly have this faith, then you will know that whatever happens is good for you. I think in the, in the life of the Christian, the thing that discourages Christians is when they think that God doesn't care about them because they didn't answer the prayer in the way that they want. But the reality is that God knows exactly what is best for you. I mean, as a parent, I understand this concept very well because I get candy, I mean, like, you know, we Halloween and Fall Fest these last few days, and my kids think what will prove that I love them is to give them all the candy that they have you know, received. And it's like, no, that's not. I love you, so stop eating the candy. You only have one piece. You need to share that with your siblings. You know, it's like, you know, I, I want what's best for them. They may not see it, and they may understand down the line, but not at the moment. And that's how God is with us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what is actually most helpful for us, the most beneficial for us, and, and when we pray according to his will, then he'll answer those things. But if, we, if we're praying something that goes against his will, God is not going to answer because it's not good for us. That's this area of praying, that if you have genuine fruit, then that thing is that what you need to have is that you trust God, that you trust in the Lord. Whatever happens, a believer will understand it is God's will and not my own. And going, continue on this last verse and said, and whenever you stand praying, back then, uh, praying, standing up is, is like, I guess, the way to show reverence is either that or laying flat on the ground. So technically, all of you that are sitting right now and praying, that's unbiblical. I'm kidding. It's fine. But back then, that's how they, that you, whether you're standing up or you're laying flat on the ground, that's their way of showing you or showing God that you have this reverence for him. It says, forgive. If you have anyone, if if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is heaven will also forgive you uh, your transgressions. It was fascinating that he first says, "You have genuine faith, you will trust him," and now he's talking about you have genuine faith, you forgive other people. It says here that this word "forgive" is this idea of just like hurling something away, like hurling something into the ocean, which should draw come to, it should draw to your mind. I don't know exactly the right reference. But there is a, a verse in the Old Testament that talks about how God will cast our sin into the sea. Like when, he, when we go to him for forgiveness, he'll cast our sin into the sea. It's like this idea of hurling, like throwing something away. 
And yet, this is what Jesus is saying. That if, you are, uh, if there's someone that's against you, you forgive them. You're most like Christ when you forgive other people. And it's not even saying reconcile, because sometimes there are people that hurt you that you cannot reconcile. It could be that person's gone, like they're not in your physical presence, there's no way you can contact them, or maybe they're dead. So it's impossible to reconcile with some people, but in your own heart, you're called to forgive. And it says that anyone that have anything against you, you forgive them. And you're most like God when you forgive people. True relationship with the Lord will look like God. Because he forgave us when we did not ask for it. But if you don't forgive, but you still call yourself a Christian, then your faith and your religion is empty. It's hollow. It's like that barren tree that Jesus cursed. It says here, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. You need to first cry out. If you understand that you were saved by grace, how could you not extend that to other people? Because the genuine fruit of salvation, one of them is that you're willing to forgive, that you're willing to let go of the things that people have done to you. Prayer first begins with this relationship with God, and if you have a right relationship with God, you will go and forgive other people. That's signs of genuine faith. If you are a Christian and you're bitter, and you're always bitter at the things that people have done to you. You're always angry that mistreatment I've done in the past, and you aren't willing to forgive that person. Then you need to really ask yourself, are you bearing Christ-like fruit? Is that really how Christ would have been? And it's not. He's willing to forgive. The religious Jews didn't have this, so that's why Jesus tells the, the disciples here that they must be willing to forgive. Are you guys understanding here? This, I mean, because when I was studying this, it seemed so out of place. There was a parable of this tree, then he goes and kicks people out, and then all of a sudden he talks about this scene here about forgiveness. But I think as I, as I was studying that, I understand now this two-day journey was this lesson about false religion that is useless, that is hollow, that doesn't bear any fruit. And when you see how Jesus is using this fruit, to, this tree to illustrate the fact that if you are a believer, there are things that you will show. Whether that is trusting in the Lord or forgiving people, that's a sign of genuine fruit. That's a sign that you have spiritual life. It begins by the story of a fig tree, and it ends with a fig tree as well. And in the middle, he illustrates it with this thing that happens in reality, which is this cleansing of the temple. And God is not pleased when, uh, when there's empty religion. Is your religion a dead one or a live one, one that actually has fruits? I know I've heard, I mean, I've heard people say things like Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, which is not biblical because in James it talks about how pure, undefiled religion is this, and so it, the Bible describes itself as a religion, but there's only one true religion, and, and I think the, the term religion we think of just like, like worldviews, and it is, but true religion, meaning the one true God, they should exhibit certain activities that are that not just the things that you do, but that the way that you are matches that of Christ. So would you describe yourself in this way? When you look at your life, when you look at Scripture, when you see how the fruit of the Spirit of all are these different things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, forgiving, you know, all of these different things, do you exhibit uh, these fruits? When, the, when Scripture t- describes that, You'll know them by their fruit. 
Is there, can you see in your life, Christ-likeness, or are you a barren tree? Because if you are, the Lord will curse you for it. And that is my biggest fear as a pastor, that some of you can be coming to this church thinking to yourself that you are a Christian because you just attend this church, or you may even be a member of this church, but you don't have a genuine love for the Lord, and it's not apparently evident to those around you, but the Lord knows if you have a genuine heart for him because you will bear fruit that matches Christ's likeness. And I hope that as you look at this from the scene of the figs, the frauds, and the faith here, that you would be convicted and be moved. And if some of you are genuine believers, because you see, I mean, imperfectly, you see fruit, you see, and you see that as you progress in the faith, there's more fruit in your life, that's great. Um, and some of you have little fruits, and that's fine as well, but at least you have some fruits. But for some of you here, you're, you look at your life, you look at you've been to this church for X amount of years, you've been a Christian or professing Christian for X amount of years, and you, you notice that there's no change. That's a problem. That is something that you need to evaluate and ask the Lord to reveal to you. Are you truly a believer? Do you truly love him? And if so, you will live in a way that is most pleasing to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, help us all to have a clear self-evaluation of our own hearts. Lord, we know that we, without you, we can do nothing. Lord, show us from your word and even in our own lives areas where we fail so that we can repent of it. And at the same time, there are those that are not believers. May you convict them, show them in their lives as well that they have a false religion, that what they believe is not actually biblical, that they're living not for you, but they're living for themselves. And I pray, Lord, that you can be with all of us, that I hope everyone here in this church have a genuine love for you, that over time, as they prune away their sin, as you help us prune away sin, that we'll bear much fruit, Lord. Lord, thank you for this opportunity for us to learn, and may you apply your word to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. In your son's name I pray, amen.